Everybody, welcome to another installment of Show to V with Mike G, the show of life, the show of absence, the show of traveling the world in search of the best vermouth. Today's guest is co-founder of Tempest Fugit Spirits, Mr. John Troya himself, the world traveler, the bourbon sipping, the vermouth nerd. John knows a lot about a lot of things, and it's interesting talk about how this wild journey ended up with his bottles of absinthe, his bottles of vermouth, Grand Classico. He's got a greatest hits of Amari and Digestifs, Aperitifs, and it is the perfect addition this week. First on Monday, Nikki Petri, just starting with Glazers in the distribution realm in Texas, and Tempest Fugit Spirits are some of the fine, fine elixirs that Nikki will be carrying in his portfolio. So without further ado, I hope you guys enjoy this chat with John Troya. No, but I've had some pretty bad absence that makes me want to jump off the bridge. <laughs> the the well, antithesis yeah, of modern yeah, absence. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like my mantra is uh, uh, if you've had an absinthe that tastes bad it's probably just a bad absinthe that's right because good absinthe is sublime but yeah. the um the first absinthe i ever had was a um uh from a bottle of 1910 c of berger so it's 1910 1910 where the hell did you have that uh in paris my uh my business partner and co-founder tempest fugit um peter schaff he um he has a pretty extensive collection of pre-band absinthe. Oh wow! Stuff is sublime. Wow! So Wait, when, can you can you describe kind of how it's different than what we might get from? Um, well, the what's stuff? interesting is that you know when you distill absinthe, you're distilling from all these different herbs, right, and you're right. getting all these essential oils. And the interesting thing about high herbal content spirits like Benedictine and Chartreuse. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, there's a very big um, kind of collecting culture around vintage chartreuse. Oh, yeah. And uh, if you've ever had chartreuse, I think the oldest I've had is from the 1920s. Wow. The stuff is absolutely sublime. It's Instead, different, right? Well, yeah. Like uh, if you pop open a bottle of chartreuse now, you're going to taste uh, one of the prominent front notes is uh, angelica root. Uh-huh. But when you taste uh, a vintage bottle of chartreuse, that angelica root almost recesses into the background to where it's really not very prominent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you get some other essential oils that convert into other flavors. Oh, wow. Uh, most notably like verbena and and, oh, and really? those kind of citrusy type notes. Sure. Yeah, it's really... Totally different um, experience then, right? Well, absolutely. And um, the, a couple of years ago, they had, I think it was the 500th uh, year anniversary of Benedictine. Mm-hmm. And I had a bottle of 1934 Benedictine. So it was like the first shipment that came in post-prohibition. Yeah. And um, we were in San Francisco and it was at the, uh, the old Mint building. And so after all the guests left from this party... All the bartenders and people in San Francisco, all the industry people that were still there, yeah. we all gathered into one of the old gold vaults, and then we opened up this bottle of Benedictine. Now, I hadn't tasted it because it was unopened, so I just kind of crossed my fingers, hoping, hoping it was it's still good. good. Yeah. yeah, it's fantastic, wow. absolutely fantastic. 
And that's the thing about spirits where you've distilled and, and are using a lot of herbs in its recipe right. is that those essential oils over time will oxidize and convert Change, and actually right? get yeah. better. Wow. So where the concept of, you know, like a whiskey, for example, uh, what it's doing all of its work in a barrel. And mm-hmm. then once you've taken it out in a barrel, it's like suspending time and it's in the bottle. Right. Uh, that's not the case for some of these higher herbal Living spirits. and breathing. Yeah, and they, they continue to evolve and, and oxidize and change into different things and for the better in most cases. Yeah. So, um, but they're really, I think, uh, misunderstood or misappreciated, really, because I think that, uh, you know, something like the Benedictine, you probably pick up for like 80 bucks a bottle. Wow. And the stuff, you know, is absolutely phenomenal it's crazy so, so pre ban so i'm getting yeah. this content right so yeah. you know i got lots of people come in i've had a lot of conversation and i you're real intriguing already <laughs> <laughs> so i get this sense like you've seen some shit man you know and i get i get that right like you have you have a nice watch even though it's covered up i saw this i did see this <laughs> okay, okay. this is what i learned from my okay. dad right okay. like my dad always wore a, wore a nice watch. he still does wear it well now it's an apple watch, yeah, who uses whatever. a watch anymore right? that's right Everyone yeah looks at their damn phone. he loves it because it's yeah. a, you know watch is a different deal it was a status symbol for such a long time men don't have a lot of jewelry options they don't, you know yeah. so it's like a, a good watch good shoes that's right know, things like that so so. Do you, man, so there's so pl- so many different places to start. So I guess the first thing is I saw you on this video podcast for Anchor. And uh, how was that experience? Uh, it helps you know me because I've got the dossier built already uh, for well, me you before know, you come in. Alan, Alan is a talented guy. Yeah. Alan, um, he was the one of the founding folks that created Mutineer Magazine. Oh, okay. And he is really this multimedia genius in my view. Yeah, yeah. And um, Anchor was smart enough to kind of wrap him up while he essentially took a hiatus from Mutineer. Mm-hmm. And um, across the street from the uh, Anchor Brewery facility, they have this other building that's kind of a warehouse, but it... Um, it was kind of like these older office buildings, and they let him, they gave him kind of carte blanche to right. to build a, kind of a studio. And so now he's doing these regular co- uh, podcasts yeah, yeah. where it's it's the podcast and now video. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting because the video, see, this is the great thing. Yeah. I don't have a, a face for TV. Yeah, well, so I've got yeah, a voice clear, for radio. Right? I mean, that, that's that's obvious and, and <laughs> wisely understood. It is right, absolutely. Like in this case, I can wear my shorts. I can, I don't have to wear shoes. I don't know what I'm trying to prove to I'm you by wearing you have shoes right on now. at all. I mean, it's it's impressive. It's hard. It's my own house. Like, you know, the, is there even a point in wearing pants? Obviously, Jennifer's in the room. I, you know, I yeah, don't want to well, be polite. Obviously, she's, she's casual. She's casual. <laughs> Pants optional. Yeah, pants optional. This is good. This is a good place Boxer to start. Boxer briefs. That's you know, good. Yeah, wore yeah. the the combination. Yeah, which changed my world. Yes, it really yes, did. Right. Yes. Modern. No, that's like look, innovation. No one thought of that until the two thousand. The, the mantis, if you will. Is that what? Yeah. They yeah. Oh, I think so. Right, I think mantis. that's a. That's the, the correct nomenclature. Is Are you, that's correct, the Jennifer? You, you, the mantis? Okay, thank you. The mantis, that's good. Yeah. I, li- I like yeah, that. Yeah, I like yeah, that. So. Well, so you have, I can't even imagine how serpentine of a story this is and how many different places you've been. But tell me where, what quaint little town did this all kind of start in? Where are you from? Where did you grow up? Uh, San Jose, California. San Jose. Okay. Yeah. Love um, San Jose. I'm a, a native Northern Californian. Yeah. And um, yeah, San Jose uh, uh, is an interesting town. 
I, it, it really it, is strange. Yeah. yeah, it's always kind of lived in the shadow of San Francisco. Yeah. And over the years, it's kind of grown and incorporated outer areas. But when I was growing up, um, one of the things that San Jose was known for was uh, for having a lot of fruit packing facilities. Okay. Uh, Anybody fruits and nuts and yeah. prunes and things like that. So you could drive and there were areas that for miles were nothing but orchards wow. of fruit and fruit trees. This I mean, is pre-tech the, boom, right? Right pre- down the well, street. This, or is it at the this same This is time? where the tech the facilities even came from is that uh, they were buying out all these farmers no. and they were just ripping out the trees and then slapping up these high-tech facilities. Interesting, okay. Because, you know, here you have San Jose yeah. and, and all this land was relatively inexpensive. Right. Um, but it... It, at one point, um, you know, anyone that grew up in San Jose, a lot of a lot of folks that went to San Jose State mm. during the summer. This is when they worked in the uh, the canning facilities. Right, where they yeah, were, yeah, common, right, yeah, common exactly. thing. Yeah. Good summer job I mean, for some kids. Yeah, and so there were some very well known people that were very successful. That you know, their experience was going to San Jose State and and uh, working and earning money during the summer really? at, the, at the fruit packing. What kind and, of so? What was that like for you then? So, do you have any siblings? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I have a brother and a sister. Older brother, kind of mixed. Uh, one year older brother and five year. Younger so you're sister. doing the San Jose thing. What kinds of things interested you as your kid, as, as a kid in San well, Jose? Well, you know, I think something that's kind of funny and it's and it's kind of this strange interconnection is that my um uh my mother had divorced when I was fairly young, yeah, uh, and then remarried. But uh, my grandparents lived in Santa Clara. Oh really? Okay. Uh, from my my uh, my uh, birth father, right, right, and and so I never really got to know them very well. Even though they're so close, right? they were so yeah. clear, uh, so close, and and so what was interesting is I um I used to go around the neighborhood uh, in South San Jose where I lived, mm-hmm. and I would take uh, my lawnmower. And um, one of the, and I would mow lawns for money. I yeah, charge like three bucks to mow how, about lawn. How old are you talking? I did that uh, same thing. Like 12. I see. I figured yeah, you were, you yeah. were like ahead of me. Yeah, you got yeah. that entrepreneurial so, bite. right? And, <laughs> um, and so I, there was this one neighbor in particular and the guy fascinated me because he, uh, he not only collected antiques, he restored uh, Nickelodeons. Really? Yeah. And so he'd have this amazing coin collection of these coins that he found yeah. and he'd open up these Nickelodeons wow. and, and find all these coins that would fall into that's the That's where the real money is. Yeah, that's Inside where the real money is. Literally and figuratively. <laughs> um, but um, he used to uh, uh, take me to the um, San Jose Flea Market. Mm-hmm. And one of the first things, and he would sh- point out different things and teach me about, it's like, hey, be on the lookout for this because this is, you know, this is something that's valuable right, and right. people don't always recognize it, et cetera. He's trying one to give them, you some, impart some expertise yeah, so you yeah, can like go. One and, was um, hammer, this hammered copper uh, that was uh, in the arts and crafts period uh-huh. by Dirk Van Erp, who had a studio in San Francisco. And the oh, stuff was wow. worth thousands of dollars. That's but you amazing. had to look for a particular mark, which was a windmill. Yeah. Well, one of the other things that I was interested in that he pointed out and kind of within my limited uh, lawn mowing budget, if you will, um, <laughs> yes. was antique bottles. Ah, okay. And, uh, Filled or th- empty? Uh, empty. Okay. Empty, typically. Okay. I, I so, mean, I want to attribute you. Maybe yeah, you started yeah, drinking yeah, it. Yeah. Well, yeah, no, I wasn't I drinking know. that early, but uh, <laughs> in retrospect, I probably should have. But, uh, but no, they're empty antique okay, bottles, yeah. mostly from the 19th century. And one of the uh, first bottles I bought was an uh, empty bottle of Abbott's Bitters. 
from probably the 1920s, 1930s. And, um, and so I started collecting antique bottles. So fast forward a couple years where my mother figured, you know, it's time to, to interact with your grandparents. You know, it's, it's, but, what, but, know. but why, what was the impetus for her wanting to, at that point, was it for your sake, like uh, to bring them was, back in? It was because, you know, there, that's a connection to, um, the family right. as it was. And since you remarried, uh, she married uh, my stepfather, who sure. had a son, uh, who is my brother, yeah, my half brother, yeah, yeah. who is a year older than me. And then between the two of them, they had a sister. Uh-huh. So it was kind of like that was the family. I see. And yeah. so she didn't want there to be any confusion or distractions. But or that's nice like that. of her. She's like, yeah, yeah. you need no, no, to no, get no. to know them. They're probably yeah. cool. They were cool, right? So yeah, and and so I always got the 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 birthday present and the Christmas present from yeah. the grandparents. I didn't know. Uh, so finally, it's like time to to meet them and interact right, right, with right. them. So I I I come over there, and the first thing I find out is my grandparents were antique dealers. Oh my gosh, it's and, genetic. And, and, and the second <laughs> thing is my grandfather. Uh, his two favorite things were um, collecting and repairing uh, mantel clocks and wall clocks and antique bottles. Really? <laughs> so the, here I am. Did you even think about it? I never even knew. Wow. And so independently of that, I'm collecting antique bottles yeah. that I'm being introduced by this other neighbor of mine. And then I come into what to, to me was like this nirvana of antique bottles. I'm wow. like, oh my God. And we're talking about all these rare whiskey bottles yeah. and medicine bottles and things like that. And so to me, it, it, uh, it was really kind of this strange connection because... Uh, I never knew that until I actually met them, and then and so what? what 15, 16? Uh, yeah, 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 about that. Yeah, yeah. man, that's that's so incredible. Then they though. started, you know, I'd spend more time with them, and they they would take me out to antique shows and flea markets, which is what you want to do well, anyway, right? What's funny is that I, they actually made me their little shill uh, because <laughs> you know they. This would, isn't turning into paper uh, moon, no, no, is it's it? Pretty like, funny. No, no, no. It's not quite that creepy, <laughs> but uh, so. <laughs> So, like, um, we'd be at a flea market, and they would pass a table, and somebody's selling, like, this old cuckoo clock, okay, right? yeah. And they want, like, 40 bucks for it. Sure. And so, we'd pass by, and they'd be really subtle about it, and they'd say, okay, here, we're going to give you 25 bucks, <laughs> and don't have anything else in your pocket. Right, Just right. have the 25 bucks, and you go over there, and you get that for 25 bucks instead of 40 bucks. And so, I'd like, okay, so this is the challenge. So, I'd go over to the table, <laughs> I'd say, how much is that? I'm just clock? a young boy. Yeah, yeah, I'm just a kid, you know. And it's like I think, uh, you know, I this would be great. I think my mom would like it. And they go, oh, that's so cute. Well, it's forty dollars. It's like uh, I only have uh, like twenty five dollars. And I would pull my pockets out and I dog ear. Oh it's my god! Like I have gosh. no money out. That's all the money I have. And it'd be like. Okay, honey, I'll do it for $25. That's a great discount. And so then I take the, the clock and I come over to my grandparents and like, God, for 25 And they're like, yeah, that's our boy. <laughs> so uh, You're part yeah, of the team. It was a little it's bit of a fine. scam. I know, yeah. I know. My parents and my grandparents were using me. But, uh, but that's, I but liked it. Yeah, I mean, it for was... Sure. This was kind of the, it's like the work in the deal, the yeah. art of the deal. Already so, wheeling yeah. and dealing yeah. in I your mean, teens. I wasn't picking pockets, but close, pretty that's, damn But close. that's good. Yeah. <laughs> a natural born salesman. Well. In a sense, right? Ooh. So what kinds of things, because I, I wonder, and I, I, we're just beginning to dive into this trajectory and this kind of this path, but were you a math kid? Were you an English kid? History? I was a science kid. Science kid. Yeah. Chemistry or more physics or? Well, it was interesting. Um 
uh, I wasn't a math kid, but I really dug physics. Yeah. I, um, I was tapped early on in uh, elementary school. There was uh, something called um, uh, ELP, Extended Learners Program. Mm -hmm. uh, nowadays, it's known as GATE, Gifted and Talented mm. Education. And, um, and so, unbeknownst to me, they, the, the school district's doing all this testing, and when they find somebody that seems to have a Apt. particular right. yeah. you know, aptitude towards something, right, right. They, would, they would see if they can kind of dial that in. And, um, and mine happened to be science. And I didn't know it mm -hmm. at the time. They, the, You're like, just, just doing got, your thing, right? Yeah, I yeah. just got sat in a room one day with uh, the school psychologist and a few other folks saying, you know, you're really gifted in science and, and we want to, you know, kind of move you yeah. into like a special group uh, focused on science. And in, in junior high, I got isolated into this group uh, where I would go into my science class with all my friends yeah. and then I'd be excused and I'd have to go into this smaller classroom uh, with like five other kids. These kids are pretty darn geeky. Yeah. I mean, I thought I was a geek. They were geeks. <laughs> and, um, and so we were doing things like creating synthesized aromas, like banana aromas. By, really? By, with the know, esters and all that stuff? Working with acetate and things like that. And, and but Yeah, all right, geeky. I, I get I'd it. I'd go back get it. to my class, you know, after the, before the period ends, yeah. and I'd get teased about it. And I didn't like it. So I actually told my parents that I want to get out of this. And, um, and, and my parents told the school, hey, he doesn't want to go to this special science yeah, yeah. Uh, class or course. And, uh, and the school said, well, we're getting extra money allocated for him. And we think it's, you know, something really beneficial. Yeah, my he's a golden said, boy. Well, he doesn't want to do it. So they oh, no. essentially released me. And now it's like, parents, why didn't you let me stay in there? <laughs> oh, man. What is this, sophomore, junior? Uh, or like uh, uh, this was like seventh, eighth grade. Oh, okay. Wow, yeah, really early high on. School. Yeah. But when I went to high school, I did take advanced biology and physics. And the interesting thing is, even though I felt math was my weakest subject, yeah. I really got into physics because to me, there was a logic to it sure. and a fascination with the logic of physical law. And so things like advanced bio and physiology, and we did dissections and things like that. And what, it was, was there other stuff that you were, were you ever a writer? Were you ever doing music? Like, or was it really mm, ac hardcore academics? Like that really, was really your not thing. Not really. I mean, I did uh, Model UN. Oh, see, that's different. German that's good. Club. I mean, my family's Diplomacy. from Germany, so yeah. um, debate and what was uh, your so, talking? Lots of words. Oh, debate. Were you cross sex straight up? <laughs> What's that? Cross sex, cross examination. Is that uh, you? You know, the the interesting thing for me was uh, like the Model UN, and I was very idealistic, I guess, back in the day, but. When you take on a persona where you're you're supposed to be a representative of a particular country sure, or government, sure. you you kind of dive in and and just not immerse, but really submerge yourself sure. into that and do the research and kind of understand how their perspective would be. Because right. when you're empathy, right? Yeah. Like, so live when you're doing their... the, the 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 model UN and you're supposed to represent be a representative from that country, yeah. it's like even though their position would be counter to what your personal position may be. You need to put up a credible offense or defense for what Absolutely. their position yeah. would be. Sure. And to me, that that research and trying to kind of put yourself in that mindset was really intriguing. Do you remember which countries you were? Uh, Ireland. Oh, that's was, good. Was yeah. one of them. We were the Holy See one year. Oh man, you know, Vatican City. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean. 
Um, we, I think that we're small, the, but we're strong, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, Granada and things <laughs> oh, like Granada, that. Jesus. Uh, but we, uh, one year we did, we were like France, but I yeah. wasn't on that delegation. I, I think I was on uh, Burkina Faso or something like that. I see, no pretty, one knows that crazy. one. Yeah, who is Burkina Faso? <laughs> I know, I know. But no, you know what? I, you know, I think one year we actually engineered a coup okay, to kind good, of create good. a little excitement and energy, and and that was a lot of fun. So yeah, it's well, I mean, it's good because it, it seems like when we're it's not a huge surprise that we end up where we are some people it's funny like we'll talk and they'll be in their their mid 30s 40s and they'll say man i don't know how i got here i'm like are you not listening to yourself like (laughs) (laughs) you you were in model un immersing yourself or as you say submerging yourself in other cultures really trying to understand the molecular balance and physics and those fundaments there it's it's like no shit you're doing this stuff. It obviously makes a lot of sense. And so maybe that's what this show becomes oh, for History, everybody. antiques, yeah. research. Yeah, I mean, it all. It's I all mean, these are the things that come natural to that's you. That's right, I mean, yeah. yeah. So I can't imagine, the, the college must have been in the plan for you. Yes. Yeah. Where yes. did you, would you end up pursuing there? Uh, I, I just, I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do. Yeah. So I ended up working towards a general business degree at San Jose State. Yeah. Um, but I still kind of flopped around. Uh, ended up uh, working at Nordstrom in Santa Clara. Oh, okay. Uh, in men's furnishings. Did and you have? Did you? Would you say so? All right. So we're building this this resume for you. Sure, here, sure. John. So you've got a good worldliness already. Yeah. Getting into college, you have a good understanding of science, which means you're probably able to adapt to certain conversations and talk about things yeah. in an intellectual way, which is good. The curiosity, I think, is which really is perfect. One of the too. keys. Yeah. Absolutely. You're you have this connection to the past. And classic cultures, right? All this stuff's kind of building. Were you a gentleman yet? Did you dress well and have the the, the swagger yet? Not yet. Uh, what was interesting is, uh, you know, my family didn't have a lot of money. Yeah. So we were kind of middle lower class, if you will. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the things that I, that I took exception to, and it was, I, I guess, this is you know really kind of a petty thing, but. Um, in high school, there's, uh, you know, for like the yearbook, there's always, you know, best this, best that, sure. best couple, best smile, et right. cetera. Most, well, most well, funniest. Yeah. Well, my there. school had like best car, best dress. Oh, real important. And it, it well, but more importantly, <laughs> it has nothing that you can control. Sure. Oh, okay. I mean, Good it's point. like yeah. you had to be able to afford, I mean, right. the kids whose family could afford, uh, to give their kids ridiculous or buy them a ridiculous right. car, it's like, yeah, they got best car. It's like because they could afford That's to right. have best car sure. or afford to be best dressed. So I always had this inferiority complex where yeah. it comes to uh, things like, you know, oh, that kid really dresses well. And, you know, instead of Adidas, my parents are going to Kmart and getting me the whatever the Kmart brand is for that. I, so there was I always you, this inferiority yeah. sense of that. And so when I worked at Nordstrom uh, and I got to to really understand about not just clothes in general, but in how to put things together, but yeah. that price doesn't isn't always an indicator of quality. Absolutely, right. A lot of times it it hints at it, but there. But I really got to understand a, a lot more about you know how things are made and the qualities of cottons and things like that. And and so that's when I I had more of a of a foundation, if you will. Do you, do you of, think about the first time where you wore a good suit? Because I remember that yeah. time for me. Because yeah. there's always bad suits. Yeah, wear them no, through your no, 20s. I, 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 I remember my first suits were at uh, 
The first suit I had was a, a polyester oh, number. Um, what color was from, it? It was gray. Okay. It was okay. it was a light gray with a white pinstripe, and it was <laughs> at um, either Mervin's or or uh, one of those kinds yeah, of stores yeah, yeah, yeah. at that level. And it, it's like you went to one rack and you picked your jacket size, and you went to another <laughs> rack and you picked your pants. You size. hope the pants and match, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> well, the jacket's got it. Well, was it was. The thing was, is it wasn't a suit where it was the jacket with the pants. Right. It was the jackets over here, the pants over here. <laughs> they matched, but you you mixed and matched your size. Yeah. And um and it was uh, kind of cafeteria. Is it atrocious? Cafeteria. Oh, it's hideous. Yeah. And um, but <laughs> I you, thought I was. Pimp. Were you swimming in it? I, I the, no no it fit. Okay but, okay. but I. But I thought I was, uh, I thought I was the shit. But uh, looking back on it, it was. <laughs> what, was it, how old were you, roughly? Like this teenager, uh, uh, twenty, like seventeen. Oh yeah, seventeen. Yeah, yeah. yeah you know. So but I you, imagine Nordstrom's imparts this amazing insight oh, yeah, into fashion yeah, and stuff. And, right? and so for me, I always had the well, okay, the the epitome would be get that Hickey Freeman suit yeah. and get that Sea Island cotton shirt and get the cufflinks and the whole bit. So. Do you have a preference in the jacket, like the three button, two button? Well, yeah. I mean that's changed. It over has the years. absolutely that's yeah. changed over. I mean, I generally buy Italian stuff now, and I yeah. prefer like three button, uh, something that's cut a little higher. Skinny um, tie, fat tie. We're just getting, obviously uh, this is now turned you know, into a gentleman. Uh, you know, it's fashion it's, suggestions you know, of John. That's, but. <laughs> that's the that's that's interesting because I I always had this uh, this interest in vintage ties. Yeah, oh yeah, and those tend to be wider and um, but well, but then there was a period where it was medium. skinny too. There right? were the skinny ties. I did have the knit ties. Yeah. I will admit to that. I mean, it's uh, I think we all have those. Pictures I, we're I not still proud like of. Wow, well, sure, but sure. Uh, well, I'm sorry if you still wear. No, them, not I a apologize. No. I didn't mean to insult you there. But uh, <laughs> as a joke, yeah, John, yeah, that's the okay, only time I read okay, it. Okay, okay, yeah, of course, of course. Um, I'm not judging. I'm not judging. Okay, good. But um, no, so I, uh, I really, uh, the one of the things I wanted to do was to design ties. Yeah, and I was really impressed with uh, Robert Talbot ties that are made in Monterey, and. Um, and so one of the managers at Nordstrom that I knew said, you know what, if you're interested in doing that, you should get more of a formal education. Sure. So I ended up uh, deciding to go to fashion design school. Really? Did you move yeah. to New York? Uh, no, San Francisco. Oh, so yeah. I went okay. to FIDM in San Francisco. And uh, how, does that, how does that make you, how does that kind of make amends with the fact you're still really into science? Is it because you have to deal with patterns and cutting and wits and stuff that that's somehow still very well, um, interesting one of the um one of the courses that was interesting to me was color theory oh, i see and then there was uh fabric science yeah and uh talking about different weaves and and how different uh fabrics are created and the you, equipment yeah um, when you think of aesthetic right because i love i love yeah. that concept yeah was yeah. there stuff and if you might what, what year are we talking when you were kind of getting influenced? Uh, we're and, talking in the early 90s. Early 90s, okay. Yeah, good. early 90s. Anybody really influential art-wise that kind of maybe influences the way that you look at color design? And um, You know, what's funny is I did have a, a color theory teacher who is hilarious, and I think he was drunk half the time. That's me, yeah, was of teaching course. his class. <laughs> and I remember I was, because I was going back to school at this point, so I was a little older than... Did the, you wrap the, then at San Jose State? Uh, did you finish up the degree there or did you take a break? Uh, no, I took a I took a break from that. I see. Yeah, so I, I did my third year, but I never got that business degree oh, okay. finished up. Um, but I had always intended to go back, but 
I never ended up doing it. Really? Yeah. That actually so, surprises me. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, you know, at that time, it's like I had to pay for school myself. True, I had true. to work. And, you know, it's. How long did you do the fa- the fashion school then? Or fashion uh, design school? That was, a, that was two years. And, and uh, does, that end arts. Up, does that end up like in a degree as well? Uh, yeah, associate kind? arts degree. Oh, got yeah. It. Okay. But my first job out of there was uh, Levi Strauss. No kidding. Um, so I was one of two straight guys in the entire school. Yeah. It was interesting. And um, what uh, what I think was funny is that the the award for the top fashion design student uh, in the course right. uh, was the Levi Strauss Award. And out of all the, the women and gay men I would, that uh, I went to school with, I was the one that actually got that award. That's amazing. And how do you how do you feel about the the style of jeans now? Like tighter, a little bit more stonewashed. Well, um, the interesting thing is, is one of the people that I got to know pretty well was the buyer and merchant that was involved in the uh, vintage line. Okay. So when they were reviving the the vintage line of Levi's. Um, they refurbished, I think it was eight different looms, uh, that were the old looms that created the, uh, that, that wove the 28 inch wide, yeah. uh, denim, which had the selvage on either edge. You have to tell me what that is. The selvage is, if you've ever seen, um, uh, anyone wearing a pair of uh, denim jeans sure. where they've been rolled up and you see kind of a white edge with a red line. Oh right, right. Yeah. Okay. That's okay. A, that's the selvage. That's the that's the edge of the denim. Interesting. And and so they were known as red line. I see. Okay. And uh, in a way, that was kind of a mark of quality. But from a practical purpose, that was meant that the edge was finished, so you didn't have to use a machine to 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 finish the edge. Right. It was already pre finished. And so what they did is the way they laid out the pattern is they used that as already a finished edge. Right. And so as a consequence, when they made the jeans. Uh, you would have that that selvage edge, and and that was something that people would roll up in well, so as a sign here, of quality. Sure. So here's yeah. something interesting, right? So you yeah. consider yourself maybe an outcast. You use the word geeky, nerdy. That you're yeah, kind of thank in, you. In, I yeah. appreciate it. Which is good. Which I think is like mm-hmm. kind of underappreciated mm-hmm. now. Now you are in what is a hip industry, fashion yeah. forward, working yeah. for Levi in yeah. San Francisco. Yeah. What the hell? Like that's a crazy evolution. I would yeah. say. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so did the way. Like what, what? What kinds of were you living in San Francisco at that? I was point? living in San Francisco. What yeah. kind of what kind of stuff would you go do? Like imbibe and see what cocktails there were. If there well, were any good food. Uh, what? what was interesting is when I uh, when I was going to design school, I actually bartended. Oh, and okay. I bartended at a place called Silhouettes, and uh, it was kind of a '50s '60s theme. Okay. They play that kind of music. You slick your hair and, back. And what's that? Did you slick your hair back? No, no, I didn't slick my. Hair. <laughs> were you rolling out cigarettes? It was, it was. Though I did do that for okay. my first high school dance, I see. Uh, okay. and it was a fifties theme. And I rolled up a pack of my dad's cigarettes in a in a white t shirt, <laughs> and I put Vaseline in my hair, which took me a week to get Why out. Why does this seem like and, I can totally well, imagine yeah, this? Yeah, and, and, and well, here's the funny thing: is I show up. I'm thinking everybody's going to be themed out. Yeah. Almost nobody dressed up. It's like I was like a sore thumb. But that's bound to make yeah, the women flock to you or the girls at that time. Not so much. Not no, so much. No, no, Damn come it. on. We're talking, you know, high school. Here, I know. You know well, but, well you yeah. can hope, one can hope. Well, you know, but yeah. <laughs> so you're bartending no. at this place. So it's bart- 50s themes, 50s, 60s? Uh, yeah, yeah. And so um, I'm, I'm at Silhouettes and they had a location at Fisherman's Wharf and they had a location in North Beach. And uh, I'd alternate between the two, but I spent a lot of my time in North uh, in uh, Fisherman's Wharf. Yeah, 
And, I love that area um, too. So the first, uh, I I bar backed for a while, and then the 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 first shift that I had, um, I'm ready to go because what I did is I grabbed my dad's Mister Boston cocktail book, uh-huh. and I made myself flashcards, and I and I memorized all the classic cocktails. And and uh, my first shift comes and I'm ready to make them. Did anybody and, ask you for a nope, classic cocktail? <laughs> nope, 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 nope. You they, studied they for wanted, a test that never wanted, was. Yeah, the, yeah. The, I I was never given the test. And um, the, the the typical thing I'd get is a Long Island iced tea, but it wasn't a Long Island iced tea. It was a Long Island iced tea, and they wanted it strong. Yeah, you know, the as strong if it weren't Island. strong yeah. enough already. Yeah, well, right? it's exactly. It's like yeah. okay, I'll 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 omit the Coke float. Right. Um, but uh, it was you know. Uh, opening bottles of beer, pouring, doing blowjobs, fuzzy navels. Right. Um, and this will really date myself. Opening bottles of Zima. Ooh. Yeah, Zima. The other yeah, white uh, drink. Clear malt liquor. I like that. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I think in a year, I made a sidecar and a salty dog. And that was I it. Mean, that was it. Were you craving I, more, like, this outlet for this uh, knowledge that you uh, kind of... Maybe? Yes and no. Yeah. I mean, I was expecting... The you know kind of the uh, clientele that would come in, it's like, hey, bartender, make me my usual, right, and it right. would be something classic and interesting. But instead, I got some tourists from Germany saying, "What is the cheapest beer you have?" <laughs> and it's like, oh god, I'm gonna get no tip out of this, so I'll charge them an extra buck. There you go. Uh, <laughs> See, no, seriously, also but, good on the business uh, side. No, but it just <laughs> it just was not the the world wasn't ready for that classic cocktail. Yeah. Um, but you, but you were ready for. You were ready for. for But the world. I thought that was the expectation and the standard. But but clearly, uh, uh, it was unnecessary for the job. So I I just did that through school, and after I got out of school, that's when I started working for Levi's. But did it keep calling you back the hospitality? Because I imagine at some point you have to make amends with all these goddamn flashcards. No gin and (laughs) gin and tonics uh, down in the marina, and and, you know, getting sick one night and going, I can't (laughs) smell gin. I'm over that now. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, oh, I hope so. I think we've all had that experience. Oh my gosh! I remember yeah. uh, uh, a friend of mine who uh, his family owned a restaurant there in North Beach, and uh, one night we were clearing out the bar, and I was sweeping and make sure everybody was out, and I checked the bathroom, and here's my buddy, and he was sitting in front of me all night drinking shots of chartreuse. He's like, "What's in this stuff?" And I'm reading the back of the Singing bottle, and it's like chartreuse. chartreuse, and it's like it has a combination of 47 different herbs and spices. Yeah. And so I'm reading it to him because it's like I don't know, it's high proof and it's it's pretty toxic stuff. Yeah, and um, and so I go in the bathroom, and he's there, and he's just leaning over the toilet, just you know, barfing for probably the third time. Wow. And I I said, "Dude, what's up? You okay?" And he's like, "It's those." Fucking herbs and spices. <laughs> but, I'm, I'm barfing up each so, fifty-seven. Yeah, so it's like that was my that was my intro to chartreuse. I, I like was, that. Uh, yeah, that yeah. see that is a good marketing campaign for chartreuse. Yeah, those. It may herbs start a little spices. rocky. Yeah. yeah, but it starts to evolve mm-hmm. and you start to love it. Yeah, but now it's, it's like I, I enjoy vintage chartreuse yeah. and VEP. And, right, right. You know, so um, well, so, so it's a whole different perspective. So were you thinking I'm going to make the fashion thing the, the end? I'm, that's going to be my career even though it doesn't necessarily incorporate all the stuff that you're building skills in well i i think it has some relevance uh after levi's uh you know i kind of uh, became involved in you know an understanding that's really big operation yeah. and um 
I remember the first time I was working in the doctor's division and the first time I saw a pant that I had worked on from inception to finished sure, sure. product. And I went to the bank with the head designer of the uh, of that division. You went to the bank with them? We went to the bank. We What's... went to the bank. We needed to, for lunch, we had to run to the bank. Oh, okay. And okay. so we're standing in a line, and I'm standing in line, and the person in front of me is wearing a pant that I created. Sure, absolutely. But no one would know it. It's Did you want the credit, though? Is that... You get zero credit. No, no, but did you want it? Well, you 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 kind of go in with this fantasy that you're like this. Uh, oh, my I mean, ass like looks good because of your design, or you sure, know, sure. whatever. But it, it's like the only designers, clothing designers that get credit are like the, the so-called celebrity designers. Yeah, right, right. the rest of us schmucks just kind of toil in anonymity. And we create these things and other people take credit for it. Absolutely. And while I was really proud of the fact that I had a hand in, you know, this was this somebody guy. that <laughs> actually spent money to buy something that I was responsible sure. for creating, I could have been anybody. It, 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 there was zero in it for me. And not that I really wanted the credit per se. No, but it but would be nice, right? Yeah, yeah, of course. Of course. It's nice to get recognition was that the something be- good. Is that the beginning of the end of that? Well, it just kind of did, cemented in my mind that it's like I'm just a, a cog in a machine. Right. Absolutely. You know, and I think about all the other products that we wanted to bring forward uh, where the buyers and the merchants said, no, we don't think this is going to be a successful product, so yeah. we're not going to let it go any further. And you just don't have any say in that. Right. But if Ralph Lauren, and ultimately uh, I ended up working for a private label design company that um, did private label production yeah. for Polo Ralph Lauren and DKNY and Tommy Hilfiger and these company and these different entities, the way Ralph Lauren works is he'd come into a design meeting and say, I'm thinking of Africa circa 1925. As if we'd all been there. Go for it. Right. And <laughs> we'll see you all in six weeks. Sure. And then all these wheels and the machines start moving right. to come up with these concepts and the story. And, and That's how flavored whiskeys come about, Well, the John. bottom line is it's not like Ralph sitting at a design no, you know, not. Uh, table. And, I'm brilliant. And, and Here's a moment of no, he's, inspiration. That's he's it. coming up with a concept and then he's having other people kind of put together all these ideas. Right, right. And then six weeks later, he's going to come in and look at a storyboard and go, I like this, I don't like this, fix this, a little bit more of that, et cetera, et cetera. And then it's like, okay, see you in another six weeks. And then these people all go to work. Well, at the end of the day, when the collection is being released and presented... It's going to be Ralph Lauren talking about my concept was this. Oh yeah, and this is well, what he's we're doing. He, yeah, he he's the figurehead, of course. It, you know, yeah, I'm just a. Well, so know. how do you how do you again make amends with what is this disparity between the work you feel you should get some credit for and the fact that you're not? Like, what do you do? Do you go? Is that the moment where we're like, well, I got to start a business now? Fuck y'all, I'm not going to be a cog anymore. You well, know? the the interesting thing is, is that by by starting a business and having it as a small organization especially one that you own, yeah. if you feel instinctually something is right, you can do it. Yeah. You just do it. Now, maybe it turns out that you've made the bad or uh, wrong decision, or maybe you've made a right decision, but at the end of the day, you've made that decision. Yeah, and that a, for me is nice what was feeling. key. Yeah. Is because if, if I felt something was right, I'm going to go for it. Sure. And, you know, it wasn't really so much looking for credit, right. but feeling like this was the right thing to do. This was the right path. This was the right product. 
Yeah. And this was the right uh, formula, if you will. So, what was the moment then where you're like, okay, well, I'm going to do something, but it's going to be my thing? Uh, well, when Tempest Fugit came into inception in 2007, it was because uh, of my time going over and visiting Peter, who now had moved to Paris, because we met at Nordstrom. Oh, and then, no kidding. Yeah. Wait, you guys were co-workers? Yeah, we were co-workers, yeah. On the sales floor? Yeah, on the sales floor. Are you fucking kidding yeah, me? No, no. That's insane. And so he ends up moving back to Florida, where he, he had grown up, and he ended up moving to Paris, marrying a French woman, uh, lived near the Paris flea market, kind of got into this uh, absinthe underground, if you will, right. and started um, uh, working on developing historic uh, absinthe recipes and products. Was he a Californian dude, too? They kind of uh, just married no, into... He, he grew up between Wisconsin Wisconsin, and uh, Florida. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So, so he's, a, he's, a, he's like a Westerner. Here's the funny thing, and this is kind of an interesting tie-in. One of the things that we had in common, in addition to the fact that we both appreciated antiques, and when you appreciate antiques, I think you're someone that pays attention to details. Sure. And that's what, in terms of like clothing, for example, is paying attention to the details, the construction, the quality of the fabrics, and things like that. Right. But he also, as a kid, collected antique bottles. Are you kidding me? Yeah. So we both had that connection. You know, and and so is. Are like you completing each other's sentences yes, and shit too? Yes, yes, he completes me. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you've known him for this whole time. Yeah, and so he's in France because he got married. He's to a in French France, woman. Yes, and so poor bastard. What, <laughs> Sorry. How does that opportunity then even like? That seems like an interesting divergence off the path. No booze. Yeah, booze. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, it. here's the thing. So I come over and I visit him. You know, I'm drinking this pre-band absinthe. The stuff is freaking phenomenal. Yeah. And I and I remember telling him, gosh, if this stuff was ever legal in the US, I mean it'd be it'd be gold. Right. And um and so he started working on a number of uh, different brands, and one of them was the View Pontelier, where he um, started working with the distillery in Pontelier, France. Um, there were only out of all the distilleries that existed that were producing absinthe before the ban in 1915, there were only two left in existence. Wow. And one was the Pernod distillery, P-E-R-N-O-T. Uh-huh. And so Peter approached them and said, hey, you guys used to make absinthe. We did. Yeah, you did. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> hey, we, thanks, we, man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> thanks for telling us that. Because, you know, new ownership, et cetera. Right. And so um, he said, I'd like to d- develop an absinthe produced here using Pontalier Wormwood. Yeah. And so he ended up getting access to Emil Pernod's original recipe diary uh, from the 1890s. Where did he find that? Uh, it, the, the French don't throw anything out. That's and good. So I it's guess. like all these old documents and everything just in storage. Sure. I mean, they're just kind of like the good oh, with the bad. Yeah. yeah. And so he ends up finding his old recipe diary, and he has a uh, a recipe for uh, their absinthe. Uh-huh. And so it's a really kind of a strange recipe because most recipes would say you take you know. Uh, five kilos of this, two kilos of that, five hundred grams of this, blah blah blah. Right, right, you right. do, you put it together, and you make you make the, this product. Well, this one said you took like five handfuls of this, two handfuls oh, of this, a handfuls. pinch of this. So what he did is he went around the distillery and he had everyone like grab a handful and drop it on a scale, and did then he? he weighed it and come up with an average. Are you kidding? Now me? this is where <laughs> my clothing, I guess, background comes into right. being. Is that historically? Uh, there are all these historic tables of 
like for example, a a size eight dress form okay. for okay. women's clothing from 1880 changed over the years. So a size eight back then and a size eight now is totally different. Right, the height change, width change. Interesting. People grew, got bigger. Did you just? Are you going to cha- tell me you research hand sizes? Uh, well, yes, <laughs> yes, and and because we had access, I had access to glove. I scales. knew you were going to yeah. go backwards, and so I said, "Hey, Peter, you know the the average hand size in 1890 was like 20 percent smaller, it was like 22 oh percent smaller than the current hand size." Did you so reduce you the mean deduct. by 20? Yeah, oh so he had to deduct. He's like, "That's a good point," and so he started deducting. Uh, and doing a calculation for the weight ratio to say, okay, the volume now has changed, and it ended up being a much more balanced product. Yeah, and that was the view Pontelier. And so then he says, hey, you know what? We know absinthe is going to be relegalized and uh, coming up soon. Right, this right. is in 2007, but I can't find an importer that would bring this stuff in. So what do you think about us forming an import company to yeah. bring up, bring in the view Pontelier? And I said. Sure, how hard can that be? And by that time, (laughs) yeah, exactly, famous last words. (laughs) And so by that time, I'm getting a little burned out in the clothing industry. And and we also got to know the Swiss uh, distillery, the Matter Distillery, Mm -hmm. who was producing the Duple absinthe and the Marilyn Manson absinthe. Oh, that's right, Manson, yeah. And so I met them on a number of occasions. They said, well, you know what? We're looking for an importer too. So what do you think about bringing our stuff in? And we're like, sure, why not? Yeah. You know, and so we also started bringing in the Manson and the Duplay. So, so how many SKUs? So at the moment, you're like, just three. I'm going to do this. Yeah, I got view, three products. The Duplay and the Manson. That's incredible. And so the first three things we brought in were absence. Yeah. And um, once people started talking to us and figuring that we were l- relatively legit, we're, we're not kind of selling it as a drug or right. hallucinogen or seeing light sugar cubes and all that your bullshit. Taste, you're, you're selling it because yeah. it tastes good. Yeah, because yeah. it tastes good and it's well made and it's made to historic protocol. Right. So it's it's really a legitimate Did, product. So you've got fa- so we've got physics, we've got fashion, we've got spirits. I tried to make it uh, the same. I couldn't, I couldn't make it the same syllable, but that's okay. That's okay. Were you ever a detective? Because your attention uh, to detail makes me think like, well, I can't get anything past you, John. But like, there's nothing I can do. <laughs> but that's history. I mean, that's I know, really I get it. The, 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 the fun thing about but it. But that's brilliant yeah. to use that approach. Well, I'm not calling you brilliant. Let's not no, do that. No, no, but no, no. That's yeah. a great way. <laughs> you know, that's an interesting but, way to think about it. You know, the fun thing is, is when you're producing a new product, we're not trying to come up with an angle where it's like, okay, this is. This is our little angle and why you should use this product or that. Right. I prefer to talk about the history of the spirit or sure. the history of the product. Yeah. And the inference is that whatever the correct historic protocol or process is, that's what we're using to create our products. Mm-hmm. But for me, the interesting story is the history of those categories. Yeah. Now, whether it be absinthe, which is one of the most maligned, but also one of the most researched historic spirits in you know the last 100 150 years sure. but we can apply that same methodology to creme de cacao mm. creme de noyau creme de monde um vermouths yeah. etc and so that's really what we do is we apply a similar um kind of uh research uh focus where we're 
I really like to actually get before cocktails right. because I right. think a lot of products ended up becoming lesser quality by their use in cocktails because most of these products are something that you consumed on its own. Right. And so when you think about it from that context, it's like, okay, if it had to be, if it was consumed on its own, it was very obvious whether it was a good or bad product right, because right. there was nothing to mask the flaws. When you bury it in a cocktail, you can oversweeten it. Yeah, you can cover well, up lots you of stuff. Could, you have other ingredients that sure. kind of mask flaws, but when it's something that's laid bare on its own, it better be good. Yeah. Otherwise, you know, it's going to be very, very obvious that it's a poorly constructed product. So we kind of focused it from that research. So you know, you think about the um, the history aspect of which, which I love. Yeah. Um, packaging, which really is kind of driven from my design aesthetic and appreciation. Absolutely. Um, you know, and and then attention to detail. Did you, you know, so I, I think about, I go back to bottles, 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 yeah, yeah. bottles, which is great. And, you know, I hear that some of the other brands, it's, they pay kind of homage to historical bottles. Mm -hmm. So with the products and the aesthetic, because there is a very, very unique but yet common thread of aesthetic in terms of the fonts that you use mm -hmm. in terms of the colors in some cases mm -hmm. like that grand classico bottle which is one of my favorite it, it just it's wonderful it's playful almost terry gilliam-esque if you yeah. know what i'm talking about sure, yeah sure, a little bit sure, a little sure. bit right sure. but did you ever go back and say oh shit i this was one of the bottles that i used to see like pay like kind of tie it all back together um you know it uh it ties into the to the aesthetic because for me you know, one of the one of the hallmarks of good design is form and function. Sure. sure. And so the function is the liquid. Mm -hmm. You know, if you dial that in properly, then it comes down to the form. I recognize that bartenders pay a lot of attention to the quality of the spirits that they have on their back bar, mm -hmm. but also to a certain extent, it's kind of their art gallery. This is where they brag about what they're all Interesting, about. Interesting. Yeah. And so, f I, I know there's a number of products that. Maybe the juice is good, but the packaging looks a little weak. Right. I think the biggest crime is where you have uh, a, a, an organization that spent a ridiculous amount of money uh, creating Custom very expensive packaging. And, yeah, exactly. Right. But the juice is almost an afterthought. Yeah. You know, it's like you're putting the focus not only on the wrong thing, but but not uh, it, it's as if you're not giving benefit to both aspects of it. Absolutely. And so for me. The juice needs to be spot on, but the packaging should kind of set you up for an expectation that I'm getting an experience that is one that has some type of historic context to it. Right. And so I have a collection of probably 5,000 or more vintage spirit labels. Where do you keep this? Uh, <laughs> I keep it in my office. No, I mean, yeah. literally. But what is it? Yeah. Is it in like a kind of a no, photo it's in, book? No, it's in binders. Or? It's in binders yeah. because a lot of these labels are kind of like postcard size, if yeah, you will. Yeah. And so I get these um, these sleeves that are like postcard. Yeah, like baseball cards. Or, yeah, yeah right, baseball cards, like right. collecting sleeves, plastic sleeves. And then I have them broken out into different spirit types, etc. But to me, the aesthetics of the stone lithograph, that uh, process that was used for the labels, mm. and the graphics, whether it be fonts. For example, the Grand Classico was spawned by uh, one label where I uh, saw a couple of letters that I really liked the design aesthetic uh, of those labels. Right. And I engaged uh, a, a graphic designer that specializes in typography and said, I want to create the rest of these letters for Grand Classico Bitter. 
and to uh, to create that label. Yeah. And so he essentially took the the letters that existed and and created additional a, a letters, series of typography based on that to wow. to create the the lettering for Grand Classico bitter. But for me, I'll probably spend about five to seven thousand yeah. dollars on the design work for a label. And I have other brand owners that look at me and go, "That's ridiculous." I mean, I have a guy that. I pay in a house that I'll pay him like a thousand bucks. Right. And the thing I don't say that I want to say, and maybe I'm writing myself out here, but is like, and it shows because you only, I mean, there's, you only get that, that one old, chance. You only get right? one chance yeah. at that first impression. And, and also, you know, if you want a bartender to stick something on their back bar and feel proud that it's sitting there and it looks interesting and compelling, um, then, I mean, how much money are you going to spend on marketing and other things? Right. And you're cheaping out on one of the most important attribute of your product, which is the very package that it's in. Is it possible that I could call you the Stanley Kubrick of labels? <laughs> is that fair? Because I'm getting that vibe, if, if John. You, I, you know, like <laughs> we've been trying to make this. Sh- is this G work or not? Like, well, you know, it's just not the right angle. The lighting's not right. Needs some opacity. I'm you know? telling you, it it it. It does get down but to where, that but detail. Where does that I, I come mean, I, from? I, I guess I don't think about it from yeah. that standpoint. But well, I'm just a layman, man. I'm just here trying to figure well, this shit out. What's funny is I have people come up to me and they say, "Hey, could you would you mind giving me the contact information of the designer that you work with?" And I say, "Yeah, I don't have a problem with it, but I got to confess to you, I'm the art director. Ah. I'm the one that directs him on the aesthetic that I'm looking for." So. If you just say, "Hey, make me a label or or do do a poster or something like that," yeah, and you know you have carte blanche, you're going to get something, and it's going to be good. But the thing that I think ties in all of our packaging is that I do do the art direction. I am the one that's driving the vision that kind of links them all together. And without that direction, the the artist is kind of left up to their own sure. devices. And true to their talent, they'll come up with something that's, you know, interesting and, and, and uh, well done, but they need direction yeah. because otherwise it's like, well, okay, if you want me to, to figure it out, but these guys aren't booze people necessarily. Right, right, right. I mean, it's funny as I often have these conversations with uh, the designer or the designers I work with and I, and I give them information that is kind of like alcohol or spirit relevant. Mm-hmm. And they're like, I'm not a very big drinker, so I really don't know. So they're not submerged That's into the That's almost better aesthetic. though, right? It is better, but they rely on me to say, that wouldn't have been typical right. from 1880s for a spirits label. Do you- and let me give you an example of what would be typical. And then they look at the visual example and they go, oh, okay, I understand sense, what right. you mean. So uh, this is a tangent, but I swear to you it's parallel. Okay. Do you have a vintage bottle of Canadian Club in your collection? Canadian Club? No. I'll tell you why I ask, Mr. Draper. I, I don't. <laughs> I, I, I must confess, I do not. Well, I no, not. so you're, you're artistic forward. You're yeah. a savvy drinker. You've yeah. got great sense of fashion and you understand the fashion business. Did you enjoy Mad Men? It seems like it really harkens to like these, these kind of values that you have, right? Where you're very intelligent an art director, you drink well, you're a man of the world. Uh, well, Tell me that you're I, not like just the, this guy I, that's I, 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 crushing I, uh, it. I enjoyed Mad Men, but um, uh, I actually like Boardwalk Empire a little better. Ah, I see. Yeah. Because of the, the time period? It's because of the time period, um, because of the uh, 
the cinematography, the uh, the costume design. Yeah. Because Mad Men, to me, is an era where things started going wrong I with see. spirits. Oh, okay. it, things got dumbed down. Yeah, yeah. Vodka, 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 vodka. Right, right. So, um, it, and this is where I've kind of identified what's interesting is like, you know, the our vermouth bottle is patterned after a, a historic style of bottle that okay. was known as a vermouth bottle that disappeared in the 50s. Really? And also, you look at our uh, Kina and quinine. Uh-huh. Uh, enhanced spirits and aperitif wines, they started getting softer and more delicate and they're really stripping out the quinine in the 50s. Things started becoming more neutral, more simplified, and a bit more industrial in the 50s. So while it's kind of a romantic period to look at, yeah. is, you know, the three martini lunches, etc. But what does that represent? That represents just booze for the sake of booze, not necessarily for the sake of flavor. Interesting. So I kind of look back to almost that pre-prohibition semi-prohibition era yeah. where you still have the complexity and the craftsmanship of the of the uh, bartender and you know you came in he knew your drink right he crafted it carefully he did it in front of you and to me that is more consistent with the spirit and the attitude of some of the best bartenders uh, that we have here in the U.S. Absolutely. Um, than say the man-man period of time. So interesting. I hope I didn't insult you on that. No, but, not at yeah. all. See, this is the thing. Like, I'm I'm getting a lot out of this chat with you. One, mm-hmm. it's a pleasure. But two, you you lived it. You got some shit, man. You got some experiences. It's quite nice. Done so, some stuff. Seen some done things. <laughs> broke some hearts. Drank some nasty stuff. <laughs> broke, broke some hearts. I'm gonna emphasize Made that. Made some nasty cocktails. Uh, yes, yes, yes. Well, so we, you know, for each of the chats, I always ask and implore the guests to pick a bottle out of the collection for us to sip. And before we, you know, dive into the wonderful portfolio that is Tempest Fiji, because I'm sitting here drinking the Fernet Angelico. You guys are enjoying the H Hirsch. That's the 16 year, right? Yeah, it doesn't yeah. suck. Doesn't suck. What do you guys, how do you feel? Jen, Jen, obviously you're over here as well. How do you guys feel about this Jennifer bourbon? Jennifer Quarries, the, the only brand ambassador we have in the world for Tempest Future Spirits. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Because and, we and love in Austin, Texas. we're lucky. Because yeah. we love Texas. We especially love Austin. It's a perfect yeah. place. It's but nice that, not to slide Houston, San Antonio, or Dallas. No, we can slide. We're loving Houston. those guys I can slide it. there too. But, um, they, got, they got no problems making yeah. money out there. Yeah. There's yeah. no problem. A huge, huge city. But uh, this is the, the only market in the world that we actually have somebody representing our product. That's amazing. Yeah. It's well, a true testament to, well, to the products and she, to the market itself. She's a special and person. To Jennifer, of course. Yes, yes. So you are, let's take a little, let's chat about the bourbon just in general. Mm-hmm. You have some white whale bottles from what Unicorns. you told me yeah yeah anything that you're particularly like this is the one that i've still kept sealed until i find out i'm terminal uh i don't have any of those anymore by the way uh, <laughs> I, figure. I do have some um uh some old fitzgerald yeah. very very old fitzgerald from the early 50s oh, man. that i've yet to open God. but um Oh, a kind of a cheap entree into to some of the old Fitzgerald yeah, yeah. is that they did seem to have done a few um, uh, airline bottles. Did they really? Yeah. And so uh, I'm trying to think of what the airline is, but it's a, definitely one of the defunct airlines. Mm-hmm. But there was an airline bottle from like 62 or something like that. That, wow. that uh, it's like, okay. It's a small bottle. It's sealed. Right. It's very old Fitzgerald, and I popped it open, and it's like this is take you back fantastic to yeah. a time, a different oh time and place. 
It, it, and it really, I mean, the interesting thing is it was like eight years old, but um, it had a complexity that you don't necessarily find. You know, people banter around eight year, 10, 12, mm-hmm. 15, 20, et cetera. To me, it's kind of arbitrary. You have to kind of be, you have to honor the spirit at where it's kind of it at its optimum. And for some reason, whether it be the mash bill or what have you, it just... An eight-year, very old Fitzgerald was just sublime. It's got a got uh, a part of your heart. Yeah, but you could pick up one of those for like thirty bucks. Oh, I I don't know what it is now, but I yeah, I not paid 30, like bucks. thirty bucks. <laughs> and and it's like I get a pour of like one of the of the unicorns yeah. of the spirit world, I and love that. it. Um, and you don't feel bad about cracking open the the big bottle. Yeah, um, that's but, a good point. I like yeah, that. Yeah, it's yeah. A, that's a smart move. Yeah. Real smart move. Yeah, yeah. So, Go figure. A smart yeah. move coming from Jim, yeah. But, so well, so it's wonderful to to share the bourbon. It's great to see. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. Burnett. Thank you. You've got a massive portfolio of <laughs> elegant stuff, all well designed, all very uh, utilitarian in a sense, like they can work in so many different ways. We're modifiers. Right? Yeah, that's yeah. right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. So. Tell, walk me through some of now i know you love all the children right yes. you have to because yes. nobody can be left out yes but what are a couple that really mean more of them not maybe more but right now in this moment what are some that mean a lot to you well i think just from uh, the standpoint that it it was part of the inception and the founding of the company and the thing that we really you know kind of put us on the map if you will was yeah. the view pontelier uh i still think that uh, amongst absence out there in the market, it it truly is uh, the epitome of the French style yeah. vintage absinthe. But um, aside from that, one that's extremely important to us is the Grand Classico Bitter. Oh, it's beautiful. And uh, for me, that was um, the coelacanth of Bitter of Turin. I mean, yeah. you thought it was extinct, but there it is. It was sitting there in Kalnak which is uh, out in the countryside in the canton of Bern, which is in Switzerland between Zurich and Geneva. Mm. And it it only seemed to have gotten a distribution probably no further than about 50 kilometers right. from where it was being produced. Wow. But it's been produced essentially in the same way for almost 100 years. Amazing. And to me, it represented this artifact of a bitter Turin that um, you thought just didn't exist anymore. But uh, it was only because it just was never really exposed to a wider market. And when we realized that the distillery in Switzerland was producing this product, um, and this was by our association with them and doing the absence with the the, the Duplay and the Manson, right, right. um, we took some samples back with us and we started uh, tasting it with some of the guys in New York and San Francisco and other areas. And everyone just went bananas for it and they were saying how you know what is this stuff how yeah. quick can i get it uh they almost didn't even care how much it cost but what year is it. this 072 or uh, is this, this a little is later? like t- 2008 okay, almost okay. 2009 so you guys are still you've actually had the absence out yeah there for we're a still while. you know kind of focused on the absence and you know we uh essentially became more associated or or oriented with this product because we were we were in uh, one of the absinthe festivals in Bovarest, uh-huh. which is held in Neuchâtel, Switzerland, every year. Uh, talk about an absinthe nerd fest! That place is a nerd fest. Amazing. And uh, Peter and I were tapped to be um, 
judges in an absinthe tasting competition, mm-hmm. which is a horrible experience, uh, especially <laughs> the next day. <laughs> okay, I mean, it's okay. Just, it's just it's like yeah, I just yeah, remember I was choking him a little bit, and then that's all I remember. <laughs> it's brutal. It's brutal. I mean, and and that evening there's a barn dance oh, held no. in, and. Uh, and Bovares with locals and all these people from around the world, and there's people dressed in cow costumes, and it's just turns it's into a scene from Wicker Man. It's yeah, really yeah. surreal, <laughs> um, you know, because this is a real country kind of yeah, a town yeah, in Switzerland, yeah. and they were a little uh, in awe of all these uh, bizarre people from all over the world. But um, but we ended up at the distillery the next day where the distiller was giving a tour to people that were in town for mm. this absinthe festival. And uh, Peter and I were up in the tasting room and um, the distiller's wife asked us if we wanted some absinthe and we almost threw up a little in our mouths <laughs> and uh, said, no, thank you. And she said, would you like some bitters with soda? And we said, yes, please. That would hit the spot. And then we're drinking this stuff and we're talking and it occurred to us that, hey, you know, what are we drinking here? Yeah. I mean, this is really good. And as we kind of explored it a little further, we got to know more about what that product was and that the distillery was essentially founded in 1920 uh, by buying the recipe and the rights to produce uh, what was known as Martinazzi from the mm-hmm. E. Martinazzi Company in Turin, Italy. Um, and they were producing their bitter of Turin uh, well into the 1870s, 1880s. And so when we ultimately brought that to the market, we actually referenced back to Edmar de Nazi's uh, original product, which was known as Torino Grand Classico Bitter. Oh, okay, okay. And since it wasn't made in Turin, we dropped the Turin part and just became Grand, Grand Classico, Classico Bitter. And so uh, I figured Martin Nazi wasn't a great name. Because, it doesn't you play know, so yeah, well. Yeah, the Nazis. To us in the West. Yeah, yeah no, I mean, no, it doesn't. You know, yeah. I don't know why. It yeah, just I know, doesn't play I know, really just well. It's got a thing. Yeah, it's, it's just got a thing. But, but so uh, uh, it seems like you had yourself a hit on your hands. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and, and this, so immediately. Was this the fourth skew for you guys? Uh, yeah, it would have been the fourth, yeah, yeah. the fourth product, and then in Petaluma, California, we—that's where um, my grandparents were. Oh, excellent! <laughs> yeah, great, I'm sure they drank a shit ton of grandparents. Great place to be, That's yeah, right. or yeah. Lagunitas, right? Oh yes, and yes. um, and so we uh, we did our research and developed our the historic recipes for the creme de cacao, the mm. creme de malt, and the liqueur de violette. Oh wow! And the creme de cacao in particular proved to be a very very popular product. Yeah. Um, it uses, it's an old recipe from the 19th century that specifically uses Venezuelan cocoa beans, Mexican vanilla beans, cane sugar. And most people, and it's, it's humbling to me, but most people recognize is probably one of the best creme de cacao that exists. That's amazing. So, so, yeah. Yeah. Well, so it makes me wonder, you have an amazing kind of plethora of products. Mm -hmm. You have the Bianco or Bianca, Bianco, Bianco Vermouth, the Vermouth, you have obviously sweet or a red vermouth and then you've got the, the Alessio, Burnett, yeah and then you've got grand classico you've got absence a massive collection yeah and a good way to take over the world but so <laughs> <laughs> having all of these things like how do you do you even have an idea of what you would do next or does it just come to i you? do have an idea yeah. um well what's interesting is um you know i look at historic cocktail recipes and all the different products that were used because mm-hmm. The idea that people created a product to be used in a cocktail is really kind of a modern notion. Yeah. Typically, these products existed before cocktails and people drank them uh, as an aperitif or yeah. digestif, but they existed before cocktails. 
And cocktails were essentially created by people grabbing what was already existing around them, using them in combination and creating, you know, a finished drink that they called a cocktail is this combination of different things. So for me, the thing that's interesting is understanding what existed before cocktails, what they tasted like, how people consumed them, and then ultimately how they made their way into cocktails and in what kind of cocktails. Mm -hmm. So there's still, in my view, a number of different spirits that either there's only a couple of versions around in the world that exist and maybe not very good versions. I see. Uh, and in some cases, there's nobody that has been making it for, you know, 40, Does that make it very years. interesting to you? It makes it very interesting yeah. for me, especially if I think it's something that is relevant to, to like the cocktail community. Right. Like, for example, there's been um, uh, some interesting Sapans or Goudrons that are like the pine bud liqueurs um, that were very popular in the 19th century in the Swiss Alps. Um, I, I do have a befuddled face, by the way, yeah, for people that can't okay. see. I'm like, yeah, yeah, oh, okay, pine yeah. bud, sure, well, well, sure, John, bud. what is that? Well, yeah. uh, the, to, to, <laughs> it's, it's one of those things that people, you know, that were laboring up in the high, high altitudes in the Swiss Alps might drink uh, as something to kind of fortify themselves mm -hmm. uh, for the day's work or after the day's work. But I bring it over here and i have bartenders taste it and they say well it's really good but it makes everything taste like christmas or if it, ah, it makes okay. all the cocktails taste like pine salt sure so i don't think there's really uh a practical commercial application right, for it right. so it's like even though i respect and appreciate the historic heritage of this spirit and its popularity historically in a particular region not functional. i don't think it's very relevant right to kind of a commercial cocktail uh, aspect. Yeah. So that's something I'm not going to invest a, a lot of energy, you know, into. It's good. Yeah, I like it. But yeah. it's not, but how it's do not, I use yeah. it? Yeah. So, th so this is where I look at other spirits and go, I think there's some other things where bartenders could use in a lot of different ways. Yeah. Um, if I can make a really, really good vintage or historic version of it. But I think the thing that's most important is that if I'm going to try to identify the best products that exist on the market, not just here in the U.S., but also worldwide. Yeah. And if I'm wanting to do a product similar to that in category, if I can't make something that is not only a little better, but significantly better, almost yeah. a game changer in the category, I'm not going to do What's it. What's the point, right? Yeah. No, no. Buy, just buy the products that already exist. If I can't make it better, then just get what's already there. Yeah. Uh, but if I could make something that represents a significant upgrade, and I think like our creme de noyau is an example of sure, that. Sure, sure. Um, you know, there. Uh, I personally felt that the, the the you know there was a product out there that that really was a, a very good product. But when we started doing our test batches of creme de noyau and came across the recipe that we ultimately came forward with commercially. I felt it wasn't just a bit better. It was like game changing yeah. better. And, um, and fortunately the cocktail community has, has agreed with that assessment. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, so for me, there's an example of if I couldn't make one better than what was already out there that I already respected, right. then I'm just not going to do it. Got but it. since we were able to find a, a formulation that represented a significant upgrade, then we we are going to bring some that sense. out. Yeah, exactly. And, and well, I and so you've done, you know, you're spreading the love of Tempest Fugent. You are at 
Juliet on Monday. Mm -hmm. You're at Austin Shaker, which is a wonderful retailer. Kind of small, but has a great selection of stuff. Yeah, great folks. People are engaged, right? You've got a good audience here. People asking good questions, too. I love questions. Absolutely love questions. Oh, shit. Well, I just fed into the whole thing this whole hour, haven't I? (laughs) Well, I mean, whenever I I do a presentation, uh, to me... I could sit there and I could talk about my products, but yeah. I like talking about the category. Like if I'm going to talk about creme de cacao, I'm not going to say Tempest Fiji creme de cacao this right. and Tempest Fiji creme de cacao that. I want to talk about creme de cacao historically yeah, yeah. as a category and what it was like and how it was used, etc. cetera. Uh, again, the inferences that we're applying that same uh, attribute or methodology to our product yeah. And when you taste it in a cocktail, you'll say, ah, now I get what you were talking about. But um, I, I think for me, education is one of the most powerful things that we can bring forward. Yeah. And that's what I really try to do. And I love it when people are taking notes yeah. because it tells me that they're engaged and they're paying attention and they're finding information that's valuable that they want to remember. And then also, most importantly, asking questions. Yeah, which is brilliant. Yeah. And Austin is very inquisitive. Too. Well, I, I mean, I respect the bartenders and the professionals. And if they're going to give me an hour, a couple hours of their time, you know, when they have a day off, when they can be doing chores and whatever else they need to do, yeah. um, then the least I can give them is something that is useful or beneficial to them or interesting to them. And so I'm always trying to be very conscious of the fact, if am I giving them information that's useful? Sure. And when they ask questions and I'm able to answer those questions, um, I feel that that's a useful exchange good use of and time. yeah because i respect what they do everything we do is to give tools to the bartenders in the bartending community so they can enhance their guest experience and make their job more interesting yeah. and and if i've done that that to me is the success i don't i really don't want to produce a product where i come out to the bartending community and say this is the next big thing and have them go well that's not my opinion right, right. um i because I, I do it for them and and through their education with their guests is where the the general public becomes more aware of our products because you know their first encounter with our products is probably at one of the best cocktail bars in wherever they live absolutely and so for me if i can give something the bartenders like then the bartenders are going to share that with their guests, and that's ultimately going to work. The for best us. solution. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so I've got two questions, and one of these I've never asked this of anybody. But for some Uh-oh. reason, Johnny seemed real well traveled. You seem very intelligent. You've got a great plethora collection of products. <laughs> Let's say you were just sipping some bourbon. You're posted up at a hotel bar, something nice, something. Mm-hmm. Nice. Maybe the Savoy. Maybe the Savoy. Yeah. Okay. Savoy. If someone sat next to you, someone. Some figure, like some historical figure, and I swear I've never asked anybody this, but I'm really curious who you'd pick. If there was someone you could just pick their brain and sit down and drink a bourbon with, who would that be? <laughs> you know, oddly enough, I mean, that's an interesting question. And off the cuff, it's like, gosh, of all the people. I know there's and, so and, many. And, and Abraham Lincoln. Up, no, I kidding. may come up with, with a different author altogether or a different personality yeah. altogether. But Mark Twain, to me, oh, would be interesting. Oh, my God, that's perfect. Would be interesting. That's totally perfect. Because, I mean, this is a guy that that lived a life <laughs> yeah. and was 
unashamedly honest. Yes. And and to have a conversation with Mark Twain to me would be just every time like because he's so incredible, so witty, right? Every time he's oh, like, "Are you fucking with me, Twain?" God, yeah. Like I'm yeah. just, are you are you messing with me? Oh, right no, now? I mean. <laughs> Because he has to be the whole time. I mean, you read you read his books, and it's really kind of this these milestones of his life. Yeah, and and it's it's absolutely amazing the things he's done in his life, no and kidding. where he traveled, and where he ended up, and the. I mean, it's just that that to me would be fascinating. That's a Mark br- Twain. man. That's brilliant. I'm writing yeah. that. Down. Well, I don't have to write it down. It's correct. It's recorded. Yeah. But well, you can take that. It's, it's a gift. <laughs> I'm not that good. I would pick like. Well, who would I pick? Uh, yeah, but that was off the Hemingway. Got, but he fight you know, me. You know what's going to happen? Is I'm going to think about this. Like ride home, plane ride home. I'm going to be thinking about this. Like, like damn right. it, Alec Baldwin. Oh, that's what said I meant. This. Alec Baldwin I said this, but that's who came to mind. No, but Mark that's Twain. brilliant. Yeah. That's completely yeah. brilliant. All right. So last question, because of course I'm very egocentric and very soft. Fish. I'm actually not that selfish. That's but what everyone just, says. I mean, that's just. But but I self deprecating, you know, right? The, the artists, the creators. Well, so how? Uh, this is good. This has been a good experience for you. Uh, yeah, you know, you've no, been another podcast. Great. I haven't had a lot of people that have been in other podcasts. Yeah, yeah, it's been well, good. Well, you know, I'm a little experienced. So I know you're so tall too. <laughs> <laughs> you like the cut of my gym that's right mate yeah. that's good i really enjoy it dude it's it's been a pleasure and uh, hopefully here. when we cut we can maybe sip a couple other things you've got in the oh, portfolio, which i'm yeah. absolutely looking forward to john's been absolute pleasure dude thank you very Keep much in touch. and when Appreciate you're back it. in town for bar institute we gotta go grab a drink we'll do we'll do my pleasure thank you thanks well, there we have it, John Troya, co-founder of Tempest Fugit Spirits. You know, John says the person he would love to have a drink with at a hotel bar would be Mark Twain. But for many of us, I think John Troya is the person that we would like to have a drink with at that hotel bar. Searching the world for the best absinthe, searching the world for the finest vermouth varieties. John has introduced an exceptional collection of spirits into the U.S. And it's so great that people like Nikki who we heard from on Monday, will be repping these amazing flavors for John at Tempest Fugit. So thanks, everybody, for listening to Show to V with Mike G. Whether you can't decide to drink another Hemingway Daiquiri or if you're too super excited for Texas Tiki Week 2016, please keep dancing.